I'm delighted to be joined at the Thinkers 50 Awards by Scott Anthony, who is senior partner at Innosight. Um, Scott, research has shown that 94% of executives are dissatisfied by their firm's innovation performance, despite huge investments obviously being made in this area. You believe it's because they failed to address the obstacles of day-to-day -day routines that uh, stifle innovation. How do we address that? Frank, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me as part of this discussion. I'm very excited to share some of the things that we've learned as we've tried to really address this puzzle, which is people all know that innovation is important. It is a, a ubiquitous item on top leadership agendas in every organization in every part of the world. People are throwing money at it. They're doing everything that they can do and it just doesn't seem to be working. And the conclusion that we have come to is people have missed a very foundational problem. That is, you can't build structures, you can't train people, you can't give them new strategies unless you address the fact that the day-to-day -day habits that they're currently following, the day-to-day -day routines that they are currently following, run counter to the behaviors that are necessary to drive innovation success. The way we describe it is it's almost like inertia has been institutionalized and people act as if they are addicted to business as usual. If you don't address that foundational problem, you train people to do something that doesn't fit their routines. You give them tools that they can't use. You give them money that's going to be squandered. If you don't address that inertia, nothing's going to work. So why is it so hard to break these bad habits that people have? Well, you know, you just look at ourselves in our own lives. You, you say, I, I wake up the 1st of January and I make a commitment that this will be the year that I go to the gym, or this will be the year that I learn that new musical instrument, or this will be the year that I learn that new language, and then we don't do it. As human beings, we are not good at changing behaviors. So you have that as a known problem that fortunately has been reasonably addressed by the habit change literature but it's worse inside organizations because it's not just the individual habits. Those habits are reinforced by structures and systems and strategies and metrics. Everything works together to help organizations do what they're currently doing. And this is why it's so hard. You said bad habits. They're not necessarily bad. They're actually working pretty well in most organizations to deliver today. The problem is when you need to discover tomorrow, when you need to do something different. And of course, that's what innovation is. It's something different that creates value. And if you've got a set of coherent, consistent systems grounded in the fact that individuals find it hard to change things, all reinforced, and it's working, you can see why it's such a hard thing to change. You've got a solution to address this and use the acronym BEANS. What's that about? So the idea behind BEANS is essentially, let's look to the habit change literature, which has really done a very nice job of understanding why it's hard for individuals to change and giving people tools to go and change it. Now this has been applied to individuals and what we tried to do is take this approach for individuals and bring it to organizations. So what is a bean? A bean has three elements in it. The first is a behavior enabler. These are direct ways to encourage new behaviors. It's a tool, it's a checklist, it's a ritual. The N at the end is the nudge. This is an indirect way to encourage new behaviors. These are drafting on principles like gamification or changing physical design so people do something different without even thinking about it. The A in the middle is the connective tissue. That is the artifact. That is the physical or digital reminder of the new thing that you're trying to do. You've got the behavior enabler to simplify doing it, the nudge to continue to encourage, the artifact to reinforce, and you can begin to hack habits and drive new behaviors. I noticed in your recent HBR article there that you referenced Stephen Kerr's 1995 classic 
on the folly of rewarding A while hoping for B. That's an interesting one. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so this is one of the problems that we see organizations recurrently make. That is, they tell people, we want you to go and experiment. This is something we really want. We want you to go and try things. And then they punish anything that doesn't work. So they're not actually asking people to experiment. They're telling them to do known and proven things. So the challenge that Kerr identified is when you ask people to do A and you reward them for B or punish them for doing A, what are they going to do? They're going to do what their KPIs tell them to do. They're going to do what the metrics tell them to do. They're not going to do what they perceive to be something that gets punished in their organization. And this is quite recurrent. We get a question all the time that says, how do we make sure we give the innovators inside our organization the same upside that they might get if they're in a startup? It's the wrong question. It's not the lack of upside that's holding them back. It is the fear of punishment that will stop people from following behaviors that drive innovation success. Mm -hmm. And indeed, and some of the companies that you referenced there have done something about it. We'll talk about that in, in a minute. But in looking at some of the case examples that you referenced there, I was particularly interested in the, the financial services firm DBS, which at one stage was uh, dubbed damn bloody slow. But they've um, introduced a new system there, which they call Mojo. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so first, just a, a couple sentences about DBS. I moved to Singapore in 2010. Nobody recommended that I do my banking at DBS. It had the lowest customer satisfaction scores in Singapore. Today, it is widely recognized as the best, most innovative bank in the world. So it really has fundamentally transformed from a stodgy, regulated, process-obsessed bank to something that functions, in the words of its CEO, Piyush Gupta, like a 27,000-person startup. So how they've done it, of course, is a complicated story. There are a lot of different elements to it. But at least one thing that they've done is introduce this hack called Mojo to make their meetings more effective, to allow people to be better collaborators during meetings, and make sure it really is something where people can dissent and discuss and disagree and drive things that ultimately lead to more innovation. So what is Mojo? DBS identified a few years a problem. Its meetings weren't efficient. They started late, they ended later. One voice would dominate, people wouldn't productively collaborate. And if you're trying to innovate, you need meetings that don't run like this. So every meeting today has a Mo. The Mo is the meeting owner. They're required to make sure the meeting starts and ends on time, that there's equal share of voice, that everybody participates in the meeting, and clear things come out of it. The Joe is what's known as the joyful observer. The Joe is there to give feedback to the Mo at the end of the meeting. The Joe is there to make sure that everybody is present. If people aren't, the Joe is empowered to tell everyone to take out their phones and stack them in a tower in the middle of the table. DBS does this very thoroughly. They've got apps that can help people act as Mo's, that can help people provide feedback as Joe's. People get feedback reports about what Joe's are saying about them, and it works. They estimate that more efficient meetings have saved 500,000 employee hours and scores on internal feedback surveys about how well people perceive meetings as vehicles for collaboration have shot up. This shows that if you've got a simple intervention that you do rigorously and you do consistently, you can drive behavior change at scale. And presumably, Scott, that, that has actually uh, gone right the way through to the bottom line that the company is more, would you say the company is more profitable? Absolutely. But think yeah. about that, 500,000 hours saved. So think about the last meeting you went to. Was it a good meeting? Was it an efficient meeting? Was it a good use of everyone's time? Very few meetings are. So the ability to think about what is something that can go and make those meetings better 
yes, of course, in this case, it had lots of benefits for innovation, but it had some pretty clear bottom line impacts as well. You talked there a few minutes ago about the notion of not being afraid of failure, creating a culture in which people are, it's okay that people will fail. And one of the other examples that you looked at in your research, I understand, was Tata. And they've introduced a specific program which addresses this and in many ways kind of not quite rewards failure, but it kind of celebrates uh, good attempts that may not necessarily be be successful in the short term. Could you talk to us about that, please? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's very important to distinguish good failure from bad failure. Amy Edmondson in the book, The Fearless Organization, identifies three different types of failure. The first is what she calls preventable failure. This is essentially somebody screwed up, somebody wasn't trained, somebody didn't follow SOPs. In this case, you don't reward, you punish. Imagine a doctor performing a routine operation, killing a patient. No one's gonna sit around and say, this is a great outcome. So those you punish. You've got things that are known as complex failures, where you've got these systems that are interacting together, a black swan event happens. There's nothing you can do about it, but you study it so you can understand what to do in the future. The third type of failures and the ones that you celebrate are what Edmondson calls intelligent failures. This is when you could not have known before, so you design and execute an experiment and you learn something from it. How do you encourage those types of failures? Well, Tata Sons, the largest conglomerate in India, gives out a prize for them. It calls it Dare to Try. You've got to do two things to be eligible for the prize. Number one, you have to have failed. This is not heroically overcoming obstacles. This is what we tried to do didn't work. And number two, you have to have learned something from it. Mm -hmm. By visibly and publicly rewarding this, by having a detailed submission process where they captured lots of examples of this, by spreading that through the organization, Tata helps to create a culture where it's safe to go and try as long as you do it in the right way. I think it's a very powerful bean that helps to encourage experimentation, and I think every organization should have something like it. You've talked there about some of the great innovations that are there, but there's also an awful lot of innovation theatre, uh, lip service being, being paid to innovation, is there not? Um, Inoganda, I believe, is the term that you've, uh, you've come up with. Yes, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, back to the statistic at the beginning, the reason why 94% of executives are not happy is because they're doing a lot of Inoganda. They're taking field trips to Silicon Valley. They're building outposts in Silicon Valley that have no connection to their core business. If they can't afford these things, they're telling people to binge watch the show Silicon Valley. This isn't real work on innovation. One of the clearest visible reminders I saw of this was a couple years ago, I was with my family. We were visiting this random business in Cambodia. It was a social enterprise. It was a really inspiring business until we came to this blue box. It was called the ideas box. And it said on it, this box is for you, for your colleagues, for your well-being. You're feeling really good about it until you stare at the ideas box. And you see not only is there a lock on it, but that lock is rusted. Nobody has ever opened it. And this is what we do too frequently inside organizations. We don't think about what it takes to really systematically, programmatically innovate. So we're creating the equivalent of that box with the rusted lock on it. Look, this is not an easy thing to do. It's not something that happens overnight. But if you're just creating a locked box, you're just having people go and take field trips and not doing anything else, you're really wasting your time and money. Yeah. And again, too often, perhaps people say that they, they want to innovate, but they're not specific 
enough about innovation. This is a real problem you've identified as well, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when people ask us what is innovation, we do define it very broadly. We define it as something different that creates value. And we have an intentionally broad definition because innovation comes in lots of forms and flavors. But one of the mistakes people make is they think that innovation and the creativity that often powers it is done best when there are no rules for it, where you just say, we'll take any type of innovation. That's not the case. The research shows very clearly that constraints and creativity are friends. Constraints enable creativity. One of the first steps you should do is before you say we want to innovate, say why, for what, where? What are the problems that we want to solve? If you don't define the problems, you're not going to get very good answers. Scott, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Frank. It's been a pleasure indeed.